Hi there. This is Thomas Spain, one of your hosts for the Best Practices podcast series from the Mid-South Practice Transformation Network. As you may have noticed, only our favorite episodes of Best Practices are archived now on your preferred podcast platform. But don't worry, if you want all the best practices for quality improvement and practice transformation that we have to offer, all 22 episodes of this podcast series are now available on the Mid-South PTN YouTube channel. That's the Mid-South PTN YouTube channel, and the link is available in the podcast show notes. Thanks, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to The Best Practices, the podcast where we explore the best stories of healthcare practice transformation from the Mid-South Practice Transformation Network. Our network, a member of the National Transforming Clinical Practices Initiative, supports over 4,000 primary and specialty care clinicians across Tennessee, Mississippi, Kentucky, and Arkansas as they lead their practices to thrive in a value-based healthcare environment. And now your hosts, Dr. Thomas Spain and Kirkland Ahern-Jones. Well, welcome back to the Best Practices Podcast with the Mid-South PTN. We're excited that you've joined us for another episode. We are talking about behavioral health integration and the role of behavioral health integration in preparing for value-based care and success in an alternative payment model. I'm here with my co-host, uh, Kirkland Ahern-Jones, and we're really excited about the uh, guest that we have for you today. Uh, so I want to welcome Dr. Julie Peak. Dr. Peak is a pediatrician in Nashville, Tennessee at Terrace Pediatrics, one of our exemplary practices that's really done some great work in the Mid-South Practice Transformation Network over the last few years. Uh, welcome, Dr. Peak. Thanks for having me. Dr. Peak, I want to say also thank you for being here. Um, it has been several many months since I've seen you face-to-face, and last time it was last fall, it was November, and we had Dr. Rob Fleming in town, and you were so gracious to allow us to come in. It was the same day that Martin's Barbecue was um, there at your office, and you had a huge spread that was being catered, but um, Rob was in town, and Rob, is, Rob Fleming is the director of TCPI at CMS, and you allowed him to come on site and do a visit, and you all did such an amazing job showing off your exemplary work during your um, many years of transformation TCPI. And so it's just so great to have you as a guest today. Thanks so much. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So let's jump right in. Our topic today is behavioral health integration. In the last episode, we had a great interview with Wendy Bradley, who is an expert on behavioral health integration, has worked with countless practices really over the course of her career doing behavioral health integration in, in different forms and fashions. And um, I was wondering, Dr. Pete, could you start by just telling us a little about your practice and maybe set the stage for what led to your practice thinking about doing the behavioral health work that you've done? Um, well, we are a small practice. Um, we've been here for I think started practice started in 1960s. I've been here since 92. Um, so we have, you know, physicians that have, you know, have on their fifth generation of, of patients now. Um, 
We um, were approached by Vanderbilt. We have a close relationship with Vanderbilt, and they had brought up the subject of TCPI and met with all the physicians, and we all kind of looked at each other with eyes glazed over and not understanding really anything of it. And so it kind of just kind of stayed in the back burner for a while, and somehow um, they kept prodding and um I somehow got um, on the committee to start it going, and with Beverly's help, we kind of trudged through. And as the more we got involved in it, um, we started to see some practical improvements, and um, we could see, uh, uh, you know, the need for it and how it enhanced our patient experience and helped our communication. Really made us look at how we had been doing things. I think when you get older physicians like we are, um, you kind of like if it's not fixed, uh, if it's not broken, we don't, we're not trying to fix anything. Um, but we hadn't really looked at our process. And I think it started with us really looking at the process simple of just how the patient calls in and how we get back to them. And then once we started down that role and saw that we got some success, then we got more invested in it and um, continued with it. Great. You know, I'm a a pediatrician as well. I've practiced in the same community where you practice in the past. And uh, I seem to remember at the beginning of this journey in TCPI, several of our pediatric practices saying something that I I certainly recognized as a pediatric provider. And that just is, there there are not enough mental health professionals for children. Um, It's difficult to uh, find the the care, the mental health resources that uh, the patients that we encounter and the families that we take care of day to day really need. Looking back at the beginning of your TCPI journey, would your practice have said the same thing? Yes, I think um, things have changed in pediatrics in general. We started doing more just routine immunizations, sick visits, and as vaccines have improved, we find ourselves, and as we're, we take care of older children, we find ourselves dealing with more behavioral issues that we weren't necessarily trained with um, in residency. And so we're uncomfortable with a lot of these issues that we're forced to deal with out of necessity because there aren't enough providers. So I'm familiar with the story of the work that your practice has done, but maybe start us, start us along the journey that led to uh, Terrace Pediatrics and the relationship that you've had with uh, a local mental health group and the resource that um, that worked in your practice and just how did that relationship start? Um, well, first of all, I think part of the behavioral health integrations, we had to start with screenings. And so just, you know, I think a lot of us have a don't ask don't tell kind of philosophy. If the, so, so we started asking. And so just uh, incorporating the postpartum depression and uh, adolescent uh, depression screens into our regular workflow was the, kind of the start. But then once you start finding these issues, we had to kind of what do we do with these results? Um, and so with working with Beverly, our coach, um, she had um, brought up the idea of, of – partnering with um, one of the organization's mental health co-op um, who actually locate had placed one of their um, employees in the office, um, started out with one day a week and worked up to two days a week to two and a half days. Um, so we actually had somebody um, using one of our 
um, exam rooms for to see our patients exclusively that would be uh, that would come to our office but see um, see a mental health provider um, and that's how it started. We started out on, on that. Let's try this and let's see how it, it did. So we had to contact them, and um, you know they interviewed different um, therapists, and they found one that worked that they thought would work well with us, and that's how the process started. So Julie, let me ask you. This is just logistics. So as somebody who's never worked in a practice setting, um, how did you go about? logistically figuring out um, how to schedule in um, these adolescent patients. You find someone who needs a screening and you've only got this resource in two half days and you've got to figure out how to get this patient, all these patients back in 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 these two time frames. How did you go about um, storing this information? Did you build something out in your scheduling system? How did that work? So the mental health uh, therapist had her own schedule and she, the the nurses were able to work with her hours. Um, and so if we identified an adolescent at risk that we, that agreed to come back in, um, that it, oftentimes patients may have gone to other facilities, but they're uncomfortable because it's not, it's, it's a different place. The child isn't used to. So, uh, we had a lot of patients who were more willing to see a therapist that in the past had, had refused or had stopped going, but it's like, yeah, just coming back to the office, the kids felt comfortable. The parents felt comfortable. So I think that made the transition easier, but we had her schedule and times. And so that we had access to that. And so the first initial visit, we um, were able to, at sometimes even with the mental health therapist here, introduce her to the patient. So they already had a face and a name. And so they knew who they were meeting with. Um, one of the, um, as we got, as we had, were trying to get more patients involved in this, we actually had a poster on each exam room that said we offer in this service. So oftentimes, one example, one of the patients who was here for a sick visit saw this poster and told her mom, Mom, I think I need that, because um, it talked about depression and anxiety. And that was, you know, a, that wasn't a scheduled depression screen, but that, uh, you know, triggered that referral. And so we, and oftentimes, um, our, our worker was able to come to the room to say, hey, if she wasn't with a patient, um, and they, she sometimes would schedule her own, but she did the all the intake with that patient. She um, did the insurance issues. If somebody was far away and it was inconvenient for them to come here, she could. She had enough um, of a referral base that she could find someplace closer to home, which was also nice. Did you ever find anything other than um, depression? I know you said you did the depression screens, but um, how did you detect issues other than depression? Well, I mean, those are our main routine screenings are for depression and postpartum depression and teenage depression. But oftentimes the other, um, we deal with 
ADHD, and uh, there's also some comorbidities that will come up, such as anxiety, uh, oppositional defiant behavior. So those usually are issues that aren't ret- are just come up in your history um, when you ask general questions about behavior and development. So those aren't specifically screened for, but if issues come up, then there are some anxiety screens that you can do, but they're not built in as routine. But oftentimes... Um, one of the things that's helpful when the therapist having them in-house is that they um, can do a more thorough history and um, if the, and they can communicate directly with us and say, hey, I saw Susie and, you know, this is going on. What do you think about this? And, you know, just give you more information that you might have uh, that you can't get in a quick, you know, 15-minute visit. So it depends on each child, but, you know, we will add screens or um, as, as the symptoms come up. What was it like when you were getting started with your partners, the other physicians in the practice? Um, I know that uh, in general, any time that uh, you introduce a small test of change like this, um, you know, there's there are various things that everyone has to work through with their workflow. Um, sometimes the change is so beneficial to people that everyone just loves it from the beginning, and sometimes it really takes more adjustment. Can you walk us through just a little bit of what it was like in the first several weeks that you all were adapting to having this resource in your practice? Um, I think the hardest thing was... Um to try to do the screening in a confidential way so that um, you got a real response from the patient because oftentimes you have a parent going back with um, with the child. And um, so we used, relied on our nurses to help with the workflow a lot. Um, we started out maybe doing 11-year-olds and the nurse was like, oh, that's a little bit too young. They they don't understand the question. So we, we changed it to 12 or 13. Then when the patient got weighed, the, the nurses found it was much easier to just have them sit there quietly, read the, um, the questionnaire kind of in a pri- more private setting than trying to do it in front of the mom. So workflow, we depended on the nurses to help us adjust that um, because oftentimes um, a child is reluctant to speak truthfully in front of a parent at times. Um, and so I think that was the biggest thing is how to get an accurate reading on it. Um, and then, um, you know, if we had an abnormal screen, uh, we would kind of talk directly with the patient. Um, I think I think the, the physicians, uh, anything new is a little bit hard to adapt. And um, but having um, the therapist here we sort of had a safety net. So she was a good resource to say, hey, you know, um, how, how soon can you get this in? Are these, do you need to see her sooner? Um, and and that was a good resource to have, just having that resource in-house. Um, and oftentimes just the patient just sort of acknowledging that, yes, they're having these feelings. Most of the time parents are unaware. Um, and But if, but I'm amazed at how truthful patients will, if you ask them, will tell you. Um, but I think the workflow, um, you have to kind of just continually reevaluate and 
um, and see what works um, for the practice. And the nurses are a big part of that because they're the ones doing the work and, um, and they can see where the flaws are with that. I think that's a beautiful story of quality improvement in action and um, really team-based quality improvement in action because uh, you you told how multiple people in the practice were engaged in identifying the changes. Very likely, even your patients and families were, were part of the feedback loop in, in making those changes. So I just, I just want to, I just want to recognize really the work that your team has been doing as great quality improvement work. I'm curious, um, can you talk a little bit about the financial aspect of this in the practice? Um, a lot of practices are concerned about investment in a resource if they're going to hire the resource and they're concerned, is there going to be a return on investment uh, now or am I going to be wait a long time to see if there's going to be a return on investment? Um, we don't need details, obviously, on practice finances, but can you talk just a little about those considerations as it pertains to, to your practice's experience? Right. Well, that was the thing about the mental health co-op. They they employ the therapist. They rent a space out of your room. So really, um, it we had to give up an exam room, which was, was fine. We had to adjust to that. But in terms of financial, uh, having to pay somebody or try to make her salary, um, we, we didn't have to consider that. So it was a good, uh, um, sort of introduction to it. Um, and, um, we tried to, we were invested in, in her being busy so that, you know, we could keep her. And so, you know, if she wasn't very busy, then they would cut her hours. So, um, I think that was just kind of giving up some space for her, um, but I think that was a good way to do it. Um, there are also resources through Vanderbilt, which which we also can use too, which is more that you can schedule that after the patient goes and um, and get some advice in terms of medication and things like that. But um, in terms of getting a therapist in the office, this was a, a great way to do it because it didn't really impact um, us having to pay an extra salary um, for that. Dr. Peek, we had somebody on the other day who's a subject matter expert in this area, and one of the things she talked about is that when there's a behavioral health specialist um, in the office, one of the things it allows the primary care doctor to do, one of the things it allows you to do, is focus on your job. Did you find that once you had that mental health specialist there that you could actually focus on the patients and attending to their physical health. What I think it did is made us more aware of of their mental health and considered that in terms of how it impacted the physical health. Um, for instance, a family that I had two two siblings that I'd taken care of for a long time uh, until they we started dealing with her depression and her going to therapy. I never realized that. Her father had, was an alcoholic and some of the stressors, uh, I knew about some of the mental health issues that the mother had, but because I never, that father never came in. And I think that piece of information it hadn't been disclosed to me and it's hard to get everything in a visit, but that piece of puzzle made me understand some of their, their, their physical, um, 
problems that they were having and some of the challenges they felt. So I think it helps us understand having the mental health component helps us helps us understand um, why maybe they are not not easy for them to take medicines or, or follow up with the therapy that we're prescribing because they're dealing with some of these other life issues. Um, so I think it enhances definitely. I wouldn't say you focus more on it, but you see it in a, in a broader picture. That's a great example of whole patient care. You know, sometimes it can be hard to point to specific examples of outcomes that a change like this has improved. Have you or your team noticed areas in the practice where you really feel like um, the health of your patients uh, and your ability to care for them has really improved because this change was made in your practice? Part of it is even though we don't always feel like we know everything to do or know what meds to prescribe in terms of behavioral medication or or finding a great therapist – the first part is recognizing that there is an issue. And I think that was, you kind of want to put your head in the sand, but just, you know, just for maternal depression, postpartum depression, sometimes a mom just needs to know, Hey, this isn't normal. Um, this is something that I might need to seek help for. So that, you know, having a pediatrician that you know, and that you have a relationship saying it's okay, you might need help. That's a big part of it. Um, because so many people sort of downplay their symptoms or don't think it's that bad. Um, and the parents might dismiss it thinking, oh, it's just adolescent or mom's thinking, oh, I'm just tired. So I think just acknowledging first that yes, this is an issue. This, your, your screen is abnormal. Um, you know, that you need help. That sort of gives them that so many people are just relieved. Okay. Um, I need help. I, I, it's okay. The doctor says it's okay that, um, that this is important. And I think that's, that's the, that's the most important thing is coming from, from somebody they know, it has a big impact for them. How does it work when you identify a mental health need or a behavioral health need that is beyond what the therapist is able to take care of in the practice? Well, they have access to psychiatrists, so um, so they are able to refer that way. If it's something that um, we've already prescribed, maybe an ADHD medicine or anxiety medicine, and it's not helping, they can come back to us and say, um, you know, they might need to dose might need to be adjusted sooner than we thought, or can you see I'm seeing them um, this day? Do you think you can see them after or before? So they we work kind of directly with them, but they will usually, they would also um, refer them to psychiatrists um, if we felt like it was beyond what we could handle. Julie, one of the questions I have is, as we move further and further toward this alternative payment model space and everybody's thinking about value-based care. We know that um, there are increasing, increasing percentages of the clinicians in a practice have to be on an EMR. And so I'd love to hear how you kept track of, if you were able to keep track of this work in your electronic medical record system. So did you have a way to track whether or not your patients were seeing the mental health provider and or if you referred them out to see a psychiatrist, whether or not they actually got to that appointment and got back. So was there any sort of tracking of um, the BHI and its effectiveness in and of itself? 
so generally when we make a referral, um, it generates a task list until we get a notification or a letter from the uh, specialist that the patient was referred to. So, so if we don't hear back that they went, um, then we'll call the facility or the patient. And so, um, and then also we can look at the EHR allows us. We saw last visit, they were referred out and then we follow up with them. How's it going? Or is everything okay? So, um, with the therapist in the office, she would um, give us monthly reports. And so um, it's just kind of a quick synopsis um, that they were stable or discharged. So we could also note that in their chart that was, you know, they had graduated from therapy or if she was um, increasing it to twice a week. Um, So we got progress reports pretty routinely. I love that idea of graduating from therapy. (laughs) We're getting near the end of our episode, and as we start to wrap up, I'm wondering, do you have any tips for other practices or physicians that might be considering doing something like this, something that you wish you had known when you got started? Part of it is just doing it, um, and don't be afraid to screen. Um, I think most of us kind of feel inadequate with that. So, But as, again, it's just acknowledging and and telling the children that, you know, this is okay, that we will get some help. I think that's the first step is screening and identifying the problem. And we're often too afraid to do it because we feel like we're inadequate. Um, I think uh, whether, even if you don't have room to have a mental health therapist in the office, um, there's Vanderbilt has great resources where you can call them um, and um, that's that's a great resource too. And I think also um, the, there's lots of uh, continued education to just get more familiar with uh, behavioral health, just so you just kind of know the medications and and be aware of sort of the screening tests that you have available and resources for your patients. I think um, I think that just continuing the, the, the education process will make you feel comfortable. And the more you do it, the, I think it will get easier and you'll see the, the benefit it has for you and your patients because I think it makes you a better physician, um, you know, to treat the whole patient. That's great. Well, that sounds like wise advice. Anything that we haven't asked that you just want to add about BHI? Um, I mean, I think you covered most of the things. I think um, patients, I think having someplace that, like coming to the pediatrician, I think they have better success if if there's someone in a place that they're familiar with. Also, it's not, there are patients in the waiting rooms that are here for a variety of reasons, so you don't feel signal out that I'm here. Everybody knows I'm here for therapy. Um, also, being able to kind of have a face and, and sometimes seeing the person like just casually when they're in the office, that, that also eases the patient um, because then they're sort of, they're coming to a familiar place um, and they're seeing somebody that they know, they're kind of dealing with the same staff um, and, um, you know, that that I think makes the success a little bit better if you do it in-house. Well, I'm going to turn now to a closing set of questions. And our listeners who have listened to other episodes will recognize that uh, we close with the same three questions in every episode. So I'm going to start off with the first one. And that is, if you were to refer a listener to one resource 
that really has been integral to your work in TCPI, what would it be? Well, I think with the screenings, it's helpful to have some information for the patients if for like the depression and postpartum. So there's some brochures on the TCPI website that talks about postpartum depression in uh, teenage, um, and it has the um, t- mobile text uh, numbers for crisis numbers. Um, so get, had, having them something to hand out to have those numbers so they can go back and look at that, I think that was a good thing from the TCPI website. Here's our next question. What book is on your bookshelf right now that you would recommend to readers? It doesn't so, have to be something about it does not have to be something about behavioral health or work. Right. Well, the um but I I love when my daughter is 23 now, but um I wish I had this book earlier, but Untangled by Lisa Daymore. Um she trained with Sigmund Freud's uh daughter, but it's uh, about particularly about um adolescent uh, girls um, and their relationships with their moms having to kind of maneuver through that uh, journey and um, but it applies to all adolescents and I recommend it to a lot of my moms and I and I refer to it a lot it's just my own experience so um, it's kind of helps you understand adolescent brain and understand what they're going through and helps uh, helps the moms as much as the kids survive that period I think that's uh, you know that's a, a hard time for most of us. And um, I think it's a great book everybody should have, even if they have boys. So I love that book. I, I, I will actually go pick that up. One of the, my closest relationships in the world is um, with my 13-year-old niece. I'll put that on my list. Yes, it's an it's a easy read and, and it's, it, it applies, you know, I, I think well beyond adolescence as well. So, Well, I'm going to ask the last question, and that is, what is one key component that you feel like a practice needs to put in place before the transformation to value-based care can really get traction? I think you have to have um, a physician advocate for it. I think uh, it's hard for a nurse manager or nurse practitioner. I mean, I think you have to be somebody kind of the top level to say, we're going to do this. Um, you get a lot of resistance in it and they don't understand why you're doing it. And, um, but I think if you have, a, have that kind of buy-in from the beginning, I think it, it will go, uh, uh, it would, success rate is a lot higher, I think. Kirkland, have we heard that one yet? We, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a, that's a repeating, a, a, a repeating thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's one of the, I think it's really one of the key lessons learned from so, uh, what's successful in making this transition is that you need clinical involvement and leadership and, and really in a small practice, you need physician leadership, physician owner leadership. And I think we're hearing that over and over again. So, right. And I, I think too, communication, I mean, it definitely improves our communication because, you know, you find out, get feedback, keep asking the front desk what's working, what's not working. Um, and, and you know, I think most of our best ideas come from them because they're kind of in the trenches. They, they see what works and we just have to take the time to listen and ask. So. It's so true. That's why you, Dr. Thomas Spain, are always my wingman whenever I go to practices. <laughs> I, I love having you around. Well, I want to thank you so much, um, Dr. Peak, for letting us come into your space, into Terrace Pediatrics again, and letting us join you. Your work there has been amazing and really a wonderful success story, a great TCPI, true transformation. 
I love what you all have done with behavioral health and integration. And it's been really exciting to see how you all have plugged into a community resource and brought it into the practice and then connected to a local healthcare system. I think that's something that practices can learn from all across the country. So that's a, that's a really exciting best practice that can be replicated in across a number of systems. So I want to thank listeners for joining us and be sure to listen next Monday as we begin a new two-part series. Be sure to check out the show notes down below where we will link not only to TCPI, but we will also link to Terrace Pediatrics and we will be sure to include um, Dr. Peek's book recommendation and to some behavioral health resources. Thanks so much for joining us and have a great day. You have been listening to Best Practices, a podcast showcasing the best of the Mid-South Practice Transformation Network's primary and specialty care practices that have undergone substantial quality improvement transformation and the subject matter experts that have enabled this work as part of the CMS initiative, TCPI. For more information, we invite you to visit MidSouthPTN.com. Subscribe to Best Practices and hear all of our transformation stories. This work was funded by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Transforming Clinical Practice Initiative, under grant number 1CMS 331549-03-00. The contents provided are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of HHS or any of its agencies. The views and opinions expressed here are not necessarily those of Vanderbilt University Medical Center or its affiliates, and they may not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes.